The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and guten tag, and welcome to Historians and Lederhosen. I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, Fisher Hall, and a collection of over 30,000 artifacts. Check those out at frankenmuthmuseum.org or right on our Facebook page at Frankenmuth Historical Museum. This podcast will tell the stories of Michigan's Little Bavaria to the real Bavaria and anything in between. Be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history. Auf Wiedersehen. Welcome in, everyone, to another special episode of Historians and Lederhosen. So uh, special. So special. Uh, because Garrett's not here. <laughs> We fired him. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so we are sorry to the fans of Garrett, um, both of you. Uh, <clears throat> <and> <laughs> All two of you. <laughs> just kidding. Just uh, an unnecessary dig at Garrett. No. Um, we'll, we'll miss him. But in the meantime, we have an intern from Germany herself. Um, Sonia, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Guten Morgen. My name is Sonia. I am a former intern at the FHA and a student of history at the University of Tübingen in Germany, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're thrilled to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little more about yourself. What are you uh, studying? I'm studying history and uh, museology or museum studies, and in my studies I mainly focus on uh, German-American migration stories and uh, just in general, Germany in the contemporary era and um, anything related to museums. Mm -hmm. oh, nice. I always like to say museology rather than museum studies. I there think it just sounds cooler. It's like, oh, I'm a museologist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But actually, I think there is a difference. I think museum studies is more practice orientated. Yeah, museology is more the, the study of museums and how they've worked over time, too. So Yeah. Which, Which I, I have done as well, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> and we're going to do a little bit today. There we go. All right. So it's great to have you, Sonia. Um, Sonia actually approached us with sort of this idea for this podcast episode um, about Nazi looted artifacts. And so we're going to get into that and a lot more on this episode. Um, a lot of the tough stuff, if you will, of museums and especially collections. Uh, these are some tough mm -hmm. issues uh, that we have to deal with as museum professionals. And so how do museums address these issues of ownership um, when it comes to Nazi looted artifacts or as we'll see with, with mummies? Um, these, these are the tough questions that we have to ask and we're going to try to ask those today and, and talk about them. So, um, these conversations are great to have and Malcolm, since you are our collections manager, I'm going to toss it over to you. So, uh, go ahead and give us the details about just kind of the origins of like collections and museums in general. Okay. And then let's go from there. Yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, so you want to dive into museology? Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like we have a plan. <laughs> um, 
listeners, we have a plan. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I was just going to kind of talk about sort of the origin of museums as we know them and how they how these kind of collections that we um, celebrate and know of kind of came to be. And I think there's going to be a lot of seeds planted in this conversation for later. So um, right off the bat, one of the first oldest museums that we kind of have recorded is, is the Enigaldi Nanaz Museum, which is um, built by Princess Enigaldi. And in modern day Iraq is where it would be today. And it's at the end of the neo Babylonian Empire. So we're talking basically 530 BCE. So, um, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> um, and then in addition with that, there's a lot of hypotheses about the uh, the uh, Museum of Alexandria, which would have been attached to the long lost Library of Alexandria, which every time it's mentioned, I see every historian sheds a single tear. <laughs> <laughs> at the thought of the loss of the, Alex- the Library of Alexandria. Um, but the thing to really kind of note about these, while there are these are sort of the first recorded museums of history, they're really not museums like we think of them today. We think of museums as very um, interpretive-heavy, uh, educational centers meant for the public. These really aren't those. They're more just displays of grandeur, uh, representing the, uh, the power and the grandeur of the empires in which they live. So... Um, Although those are kind of the original museums, they're really not what we think of today. Um, the museums that we consider today really start with what we call these cabinets of curiosity. Those are kind of the beginning of the modern museum. So uh, they were also known as wonder rooms, which is <laughs> so lame compared to cabinets of curiosity. Like cabinets of curiosity, you want to go check that out. Yeah. Like you want to you know, hang out with your rich friends and go to the cabinets of curiosity. It's got a good ring to it. I, I, I don't think I want to go over to someone's house and say, hey, you want to see my wonder room? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Uh, no, I'll pass. Just a little creepy. Yeah, you know, like, uh, okay, I'm seeing a red flag here, right? <laughs> um, so these became really popular in Italian Renaissance, these cabinets of curiosity. And obviously, um, these are for the rich folks. So these are an aristotic um aristocratic, pardon me, uh, practice. And it's kind of just like, it's it's a lot like these older museums that we've been talking about where they're really just like kind of a smattering of displays of objects. I mean, they're all just kind of things that are fun to look at. Um, at the time, you know, objects were acquired through uh, foreign travels to tell stories and often, you know, um, just kind of purchased abroad. So a lot of these aristocrats would be going on these lavish travels, acquiring these foreign objects, you know, and then bringing mm-hmm. them all back, putting them on display, and they'd have a party and show them off. That's what these cabinets of curiosities were sort of orig- originated, and that's kind of what they became. In actual fact, too, a lot of these weren't actually purchased through travels. A lot of times they would just pick up cool stuff at the market and then just Oh, okay. make up a story of like, oh yes, I traveled to the Far East and I found this and <laughs> and now it's in my cabinet. I'm a very interesting aristocratic person. It's like, no, you're just a rich guy that bought something at the market and then made up a story to try to make himself look interesting. <laughs> Shade given. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, if, if we're thinking, like, interpretively, again, too, there's like a real lack of interpretation. There's a lack of interest in, like, the actual object itself, its providence. It's really just a way for these people to be boastful and kind of showmanship. There's no real scientific discovery or intrigue or interest, really, in these objects. It's really just to kind of show off, um, which is quite interesting. However... Um, this eventually starts to kind of change because with the, um, you know, kind of with the growth of, um, 
you know, uh, historic, uh, scientific discovery during the age of enlightenment, you really see this start to change where these collections start to become a little bit more refined. Um, you know, they obviously remain amongst aristocratic and royalty throughout the 18th century, but the age of enlightenment really brings in this idea of like, no, why, you know, why and what, um, Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. these kind of really fundamental questions. So some of these personal, more purposeful collections start to grow so large, in fact, um, that they eventually kind of get moved over or donated to public institutions, which begin to form what we kind of think of as actual museums that are sponsored by the state. So the state starts absorbing some of these collections and then taking care of them for scientific discovery and um, actual purpose basically so that's how we kind of see the um the start of you know the louvre in um in paris and the british museum in london in the 1700s these kind of more state-funded very purposeful museums now where these museums really find growth is during sort of the age of napoleon and um, european conquest europeans are uh, very interested in taking over not europe but anything else that they find so uh you actually see napoleon is probably one of the first uh really great um Great's the wrong word, but uh, prominent um, rulers who is directly interested in acquiring more art, more antiquities, more stuff that he's going to bring back to France and then put on display in the Louvre. So um, looting and looting. Yeah, Yeah, looting is probably the best word for it Um, uh, through conquest predominantly. Um, So. Uh, you see Napoleon doing it. Um, obviously, he's bringing in artifacts and um, painting and art and uh, all types of things from all over Europe, but also North Africa, and um, you know, um, and most notably too, probably the Rosetta Stone. It's Napoleon's army that finds the Rosetta Stone when he con- uh, when he conquers Egypt, and they send it back, and then later it's a it's a Frenchman that ends up translating it. Um, <clears throat> but you really see, you know, the, you know, the British are doing this, the French, the Spanish, the Germans, the Portuguese. Well, let's face it. Basically, anyone that can is doing this now. <laughs> and they're, exp- they're dramatically expanding these state-funded museums through conquest. So the museums do not really begin to catch, um, ironically, in North America until about the 19th and 20th century. That's when we kind of start to see um, American museums kind of take on the same banner. Obviously, with the expansion of uh, the United States as a world power, you see more and more import-export of antiquities, art, and um, objects to create kind of what we think of as the modern museum. So that's a little bit of the history, but like, you know, what, what that kind of gets us to now. Um, and this, you know, and, and this history is why a lot of people uh, today have um, some issues with uh, with museums and how they rose to prominence and what they have in their collections and why they exist. This is why some people say that uh, museums are inherently rooted in colonialism is because most of these major museums that we think of acquired their collections through arguably unethical means. Um, and that's kind of what brought us here today. So today we place a much higher value, I think, on interpretation than on just mass exhibition. Um, even during this previous times, it's really about like showing the power of the collector. So whether it be the state, France, and Bonaparte, you know, like, look at what, like, look at all I've, I conquered, and now I have all this stuff. Today, we think of museums as much more interpretive places um, instead of mass exhibitions. So, um, you know, sometimes in museums, we like to say one artifact with a story is worth way more than 100 artifacts with no story um, because we really value that interpretation. You know, what is the history of this object? What does it represent? Who does it represent? Who used it? Why did they use it? These things are much more important to us nowadays in museums rather than just like, look, it's gold, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, honestly, like a, a good story about a... Um, a pencil is so much cooler than the, you know, a 24 karat gold brick that is just another 
gold brick. You know, um, so the museum field is highly specialized these days too, with degrees, certifications, qualifications, specializations, and standards. Um, the standardization of museums really kind of began in the 1970s and 80s. That's when you see sort of the more of these broad standards that all museums are trying to adhere to. You also see um, these kind of standards in terms of how do we process artifacts, how do we store them, how do we collect them, uh, you know, the types of paperwork you need. And then you also see a lot of these kind of larger overseeing organizations start to sprout out throughout the world. So in the States, we have the American Alliance of Museums, but there's also the International Center for the Study of the Preservation and Restoration of Cultural Property, the Canadian Conservation Institute, International Council of Museums. Uh, Here in Michigan, we also have the um, Michigan Museums Association that brings people together and we have conferences and we kind of, you know, discuss what's going on in the field. What do we need in the field? What are we lacking? What are we doing well? What do we, what do we need to improve? So the real standardization of museums has really only been happening for the last, what, um, 50 years, essentially. Um, and you know, a lot of, um, you know, derived from these organizations are policies and procedures that are adopted by museums to adhere to standards set forth in the field. So a great example is in the FHA, we have adopted the, um, code of ethics policy for museums. So that's actually a policy that was created by the American Alliance of Museums that we were like, yep, ditto. (laughs) We will just adhere to that. That's good enough. We don't have to write our own. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in addition to, we also follow uh, NAGPRA, which is a Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. So that was actually a state um, legislation that we adhere to. And, you know, a lot of these large organizations work with governments, too, to pass legislation to enforce these policies and make them basically more real, um, which I think is really, really quite important. Um, But that's a a basic, you know, thousand foot view of (laughs) how museums sort of came to be. um, Great great work. Cool. Um, That gives us a great place, starting point, essentially. And so I really liked what you were saying on, we see these more standardization and all these code of ethics and things like that because museums themselves are kind of rooted in this era of like colonialism and there's an issue of where these artifacts are coming from, um, what these artifacts are, and how people are getting them, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the issue um, that museums have had recently in the last um, you know, century that people have started to think about, um, is it okay if we display this object or, or this artifact or what yeah. is this? Or um, even own it to begin with. Or even own know? it to begin <laughs> with, yeah, questions of ownership. And I think this was most recently kind of brought to the limelight in – 2014, when there was actually a museum in Providence that they decided they always had a mummy on exhibit, Mm -hmm. okay? But it was kind of in its own little gallery, and and one day in 2014, they decided, let's bring it to kind of the center of the museum and really highlight this mummy. And so they actually, the mummy was in a linen wrap, essentially, in its linen wraps, and Mm -hmm. placed outside of a coffin in the center of the museum. And as people started coming through, uh, recently, that they took issue with this. Um, a lot of critics started to call the display disrespectful mm-hmm. in a way because we think of mummies as these um, really just impressive old artifacts, some people. Mm-hmm. And then people come along and recognize that the mummies were people at one yeah. point. And this is human remains that we're dealing with, right? It's not just something you stick in a cabinet of curiosity and show off. It's There are very deep issues at stake here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and the the trade, the cultivation of um, mummies and human remains, especially in Europe, has been terrible. Uh, mm. 
Europeans were eating mummies at one point, literally, oh my God. as a uh, as a remedy. Yeah, there mm. was like this myth that uh, <laughs> it could cure all, it could extend your life, and so they were literally buying and eating um, mummified remains from Egypt. And so we've probably yeah. lost entire money mummies to necrophilic uh, cannibalization, essentially, yeah. which is just bizarre and awful. I think yeah. there were also mummy unwrapping parties at some point. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Again, too, because you'd have these really rich aristocrats um, all over Europe that could afford to just buy the mummy, import it, and then it was like, yeah, it was like a um, like a gender reveal party, almost. Like the, there was one, there was one quote or something I saw that like if you were um, a rich, wealthy person at this time and you traveled and you went to Egypt, you had to come back with a mummy. <laughs> like that was one of those things that you yeah. always came back. Like you pack a bag and then you also. Pack a mummy, as bad as that sounds. Mm-hmm. It's like, like a mummy in one hand and a crocodile in the other, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so these these are tough issues to try to deal with. Um, and so on one side of the coin, you have the people that are recognizing, right, that the, the mummy's remains are human and mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't display them. Or if we do, we have to do it in a very intentional sort of way. Um, and we can get into kind of how to do that. But other other people on the other side of the coin, they would say that, it might be okay to display the mummies um, as almost a sign of respect, right? Um, the, the ancient Egyptians, that they mummified people to preserve them. Um, and so there's there's things that work there um, that other people would say that it might be more respectful to actually show their memory, show their culture hmm. um, of the Egyptians and things like that. But a lot of these arguments might fly against some of the, the current demand for this like cultural sensitivity, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are tough issues, and I don't know that I have the answer <laughs> personally of how to exactly do this, but museums have uh, come up with some better ways, some ethical ways to try to display mummies. And, and this, is, this is a thing because 350 institutions, I found this morning, um, actually display um, Egyptian mummies mm-hmm. around the world. And that's a lot of institutions yeah. to be displaying human remains um, in a very personal sort of way. And so, um, and we have to also face it that mummies are also a draw for crowds. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. Uh, it's what got me into history, honestly. It mm. was like, it was ancient Egyptians and mummification. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's awesome. I need to know everything. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually pretty creeped out by mummies ever since. Oh, yeah. I never wanted to see them when I was a child. <laughs> I think... Um, I read this quote that um, modern people have this fear of seeing the dead. I think hmm. I am really one of those people. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I can't. I can't. I can't say the same. My favorite movie is 1999, The, the Mummy, Mummy. <laughs> <laughs> with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. We have talked about The Mummy in another episode too. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's obviously a draw, and for museums trying to preserve um, not only that Egyptian history, but also mm-hmm. many other aspects of history. It helps to have a mummy to have funding as well for visitors to attract people and, and mm-hmm. sell tickets. And so these are issues that um, it, museums have to deal with. Right? Well, and you're, and you're hitting <laughs> on a, a really interesting issue too, which is what is the point of the modern museum? Is it to right. sell tickets? Is it to just raise revenue? Is it for preservation? Is it for education? And uh, the uh, the reality of the answer is it's all of the above. Um, museums are there to preserve artifacts, to educate the public, and they have to make some money to be able to do all of that. Right. Um, and unfortunately, um, mummies and um, 
stolen, looted artifacts or artifacts without uh, the proper provenance to be at um, one institution or another uh, become a main attraction. I think that's where you see a lot of issues with repatriation um, of artifacts now is a lot of these museums just like aren't willing to give up those artifacts. One, because they say that they worry about the preservation of that artifact if it's not in their institution. And two, because it's a draw for them. It's a moneymaker. I mean, um, you have this issue with uh, totem poles as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of totem poles were pillaged from uh, North America uh, during the um, early expeditions. And uh, there's a really um, interesting case study with a Denmark um, museum. Um, where they have like a huge collection of totem poles, like over 20 totem poles in their museum. And they've been working with the local indigenous groups to um, talk about repatriation. And one of the big sticking points is apparently is that the design of the totem pole was to be outside and to be worn away naturally. Mm -hmm. Like that's part of the the religious life cycle of the totem pole. Mm -hmm. And that's what the indigenous people want to do with it is they want to put it back outside. And the museum is like, no, you can't do that because then it'll... It'll disappear and it's not being preserved. And that's like the huge sticking point here. But then obviously under the surface, it's like, well, one of the big draws for this museum in Denmark is they have this huge collection of totem poles yeah. that people come all over the world to see. So yeah, it's it's very difficult. And um, it's uh, there's no easy answers, unfortunately, throughout this conversation. There's not. There's not. Uh, did you have something to add, Sonia? Uh, yes, I think it really comes down to the question, um, like who is able to interpret the artifact Mm -hmm. is it the museum is it the western museum standards that say an artifact has to be preserved in that way and it cannot be outside because otherwise it would get lost Mm -hmm. or is it actually do we actually respect the indigenous people who say no we interpret this as something that is um, designed to be outside Mm -hmm. and i think um, if we really want to take indigenous people seriously we should maybe consider letting go of this artifact just uh, for the sake of respecting them. Mm-hmm. Well, there's other ways to document it too. I mean, it's not like we'll never know what it looked like if we, if we put it outside again, you know? Um, yeah, it, it, it's a balance. And unfortunately I, it, it seems like we're really unwilling to entertain alternative forms of preservation um, mm-hmm. in that way. Cause I mean, there's a Buddhist practice too um, where um, Buddhist monks make these really, incredible symmetrical sand designs and then the whole point is that you make it and it's beautiful and then you take it away um keeping in in line with um you know um buddhism principles and you know people freak out about that too they're like oh no like it's so beautiful we need to preserve it it's like "Eh, that is life too you know that's part of life is not everything is perfect and not everything is preservable Mm -hmm. and i think this this conversation also gets into kind of questions of permission especially when Mm -hmm. we're talking about mummies right because um, Malcolm, for example, when someone wants to donate an artifact, mm-hmm. what do you have to do on your end to to make that happen? If the museum's going to then take it, uh, like just like the process of acquisition, sure, and like just who then owns it, what mm, forms mm-hmm. you have to have signed. Kind sure, of yeah. So um, one of the most important forms we have to get signed anytime someone gives a donation is, uh, it's called a deed of gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and the deed of gift basically legally transfers ownership from the donor to the museum. And mm-hmm. in that uh, deed of gift, there's a line that says that uh, I am the legal owner of this property and, tr- and therefore transfer legal ownership to the museum. Mm. Um, that's a really important document because that's, you know, um, obviously... Uh, 
you know, <laughs> it has to be legal. Right. Um, right. But uh, what that kind of brings up an interesting question of is uh, long-term provenance, is who has been the legal owner, and are you actually the legal owner? Um, so if you look at um, looted artifacts, um, this is where we get into a very difficult and um, troubling conversation about Nazi looted artifacts throughout Europe during World War II by the Nazis, who stole countless um, artifacts, art, personal memorabilia from um, the Jewish community, uh, pillaged all of these things and then tried to put them in their own museums and then sold them. And that's still going on today as you will have artifacts that are either in a museum or donated to a museum eventually that were actually stolen from Jewish communities, Jewish families by the Nazis. Um, and there's this uh, really uh, difficult um, conversation about repatriation of those artifacts um, mm-hmm. to those uh, those families that lost all of their stuff. Yeah. Um and so that's where the deed of gift is really important in doing that kind of due diligence of making sure that that person donating it actually has legal um, right, ownership right. of it. I mean, here in Frankenmuth, it's pretty cut and dry. It's like, hey, these are my mom's photographs. She just passed away. I'm do- like, so they're, sure. they're mine. I'm donating it. To me. Like, there's not a lot of question there. Right, right. But obviously, with much larger pieces like actual works of art, um, you know, uh, more substantial things in copyright too. You know, yeah. if like a photographer donates their whole collection, that's yeah. um, it takes more time. But uh, and when you talk about right mummies specifically, just to bring it back here real quick, and then we'll we'll move on to the Nazi looted artifacts. I promise. But uh, <laughs> it's in the title. That's what they're waiting for. Nathan. <laughs> I, know, I know. So are mummies, and we yeah. gotta, we have more to talk about. So it, when we're talking about permission with human remains, especially ancient human remains, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have anyone to go to to get permission to display them. And so that makes it even trickier, right? Yeah. Um, or in the case of Nazi looted artifacts that we may not know who the owner of this piece of art is, who, who actually painted this. Um, and so l- let's dive into the Nazi looted artifacts. I think there's more conversation to be had on both of these fronts. But Sonia, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you. I know you've kind of talked about um, Nazi looted artifacts maybe in one of the recent classes uh, you've taken. So maybe let's just dive into, give us some context on this. What was going on? Sure. Um, So the topic of Nazi looted artifact and its repatriation actually came into the public spotlight in the 1990s already. And um, I think this was because the press and the public started to, to realize that actually in a lot of museums around the world, there are still tons of artifacts that have a background of Nazi looting. And um, so that became a subject of public interest. And um, one might ask, well, how did they get there in the first place? How did a Nazi looted artifact that was originally from France end up in, I don't know, in the United States, for example? And I think that's a very good question. Um, Well, let me give you a little historical context first. So when the Nazis came into power in 1933 in Germany, they started the systematic dispossession of the Jewish community in Germany, which was um, also called the Aryanization, so the success of removal of Jews from the economy. And this is when a lot of Jews lost their jobs and then had to sell their valuables, like valuable works of art, valuable books, etc., anything that was... um, that they could get money actually for to make a living and others had to sell had to sell their valuables to be able to emigrate to flee the Nazi regime and so this is how a lot of um, just belongings cultural property of the Jewish community ended ended up like in the hands of the Nazis and then um, the Nazis also started taking away works of modern art um, from German museums and galleries I think over a hundred German museums museums and galleries because they um, 
basically defamed it as so-called degenerate art because um, modern art didn't go along with their standards, their ethicals, no, their aesthetic. But uh, they didn't stop there. They then tried to basically publicly ridicule this so-called degenerate art and put it in a traveling exhibit, which mm -hmm. they called an Arte de Kunst, degenerate art. Jeez. And um, so the public could basically see what they disapproved of. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, so. um, they tried to sell it to make as much money as they could, basically to fund the war. Yeah. Um, or they destroyed it. And this is basically the, stat the um, starting point of the scattering of Nazi looted artifacts across the world because people from Switzerland bought it. A lot of uh, collectors in the United States bought these um, works of art so they didn't get destroyed. Mm -hmm. And then um, mm. this was um, inside the Reich, so Germany, Austria, and the annexed um, territories. But then they also, when they conquered um, other parts of Europe, they basically applied what they had established as looting and pillaging processes to these uh, territories or countries and um, looted, I think, over 600,000 artifacts in total mm. and stored them in depots across Europe. Yeah. Even that's probably a conservative estimate, too. Mm. You know, yeah. There's no way to truly know how many. I, I think it's so interesting that you, you would think in a, in a time of war or something like this that, you know, this is something sort of accidental that maybe the art is getting um, destroyed or it's being stolen. It's kind of an accidental process, but no, we have evidence that this was a very intentional thing that oh, happened. Yes. It's very systematical. Well, and it's, it's, it's somehow a little bit different than anything we've seen before then too, because, you know, it, it, going back to Napoleon, just because we brought it up, I mean, they, they just kind of, took what they saw looked cool from the countries they conquered, whereas this sure. was a specifically targeting a group of people's stuff within countries. Like, it wasn't mm -hmm. like, oh, this is French, so we'll take it. No, this is something that belongs to a Jewish family in France, so we're definitely taking it. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's, we really just hadn't seen it on this scale. We Like, the world has never seen anything quite like that, where it was a, a specific kind of people in every country that they conquered that they wanted to take something from. And... Mm -hmm. Well, Jewish people were the main target, obviously, but I think for accuracy, it has to be added that they also took um, works of art away from just regular museums True. in France, mm -hmm. Belgium, Netherlands, just because they wanted them for their own museums. And mm -hmm. I think there was actually a secret list um, published by Hermann Göring that was called, um, I forgot the exact name, but it was a list of artifacts that were to be looted under any circumstances. Wow. So it's very, very intentional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the this intentional process, like who who then started? My, my understanding is um, a lot of people may not realize this, but Hitler was also an artist, right? And so he had a, a desire, I guess, to to intentionally implement this. Do you know any more about that? Sonia? Yeah, I do. Well, Hitler had wanted to become a professional artist himself, but he failed. Um, he applied to the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna, I think it was, but they rejected him. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, then he became a politician, which is pretty tragic, I think. I think had they accept accepted him, history might have gone in another direction. The what else of history. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he still um, continued to be a very, well, very interested in art and he had a private collection. And um, when he had the possibility of looting um, objects of art that he fancied, he thought, well, it would be nice to expand this collection with um, the works of the so-called 
old masters, which really fit his um, aesthetic standards. And the old masters are, just for a bit of context, anything before the 17th century, so Baroque, uh, Renaissance, etc. And so he did that. Um, and there were... Actually, um, we talked about how systematic this all was, this process. And I think this is very a very German thing too. Like Germans like to have a system, and they like they like administration, they like bu bureaucracy, <laughs> they like agencies. And so, the looting of art was no exception from that. There were two mm. main agencies, systematical agencies, that were looting um, in Germany and the occupied territories, and. Um, they were at times competing against each other because one was subordinate to Hermann Göring mm -hmm. and one was subordinate to Hitler. And um, so both wanted the artifacts for their private collections. Mm -hmm. But then Hitch Hitler eventually made it clear that he had the prerogative of choosing the art and artifacts that he wanted. Sure. Yeah. And so my understanding too is that this was done on a very large scale, right? I think by the end of the war... Um, we're looking at millions of artifacts that were looted by Nazis. I think six hundred thousand is the mm. um, the estimate, but in these depots across Europe, I think the Allied forces found, or the U.S. Army found, about five million artifacts that had been stored there. But um, they were also just brought there from German museums to safeguard them from bombing uh, okay. and other kinds of destruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they literally. Uh, carved out a mine or used an old mine essentially to keep these pieces of art and like deep, deep in the mines to, to preserve them. And yeah. Um, <laughs> That's great for preservation. Yes. absolutely <laughs> great. <laughs> Surround this art with salt. <laughs> Gosh. So again, whether we're dealing with, I think whether it's mummies or whether it's Nazi looted artifacts, getting into questions of like permission and ownership um, especially on this large of a scale, right, uh, with the Nazi looted artifacts. is By the end of the war, we've got 100,000 or so artifacts that we don't know who the owner is, who painted it. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what do you do as a museum if you have one of these pieces of art? Um, that's, that's the question. <laughs> yeah. I think the big thing is, is really tracing the provenance. That's what it mm -hmm. all comes down to. I mean... Um, for years, it was unknown that uh, so many pieces of art had not been uncovered, too. For as much, and that's the crazy thing, for as much art that was discovered by the Allied forces or the Monuments Men mm -hmm. or anything like that, there's still, I mean, tons got shipped out, um, made its way to Argentina, tons just stayed in back rooms um, and was hidden for, for years and years and years and then started kind of seeping its way out um, because obviously, although the, um, the Nazi regime regime was stopped in 1945 you know nazis were still around you know uh there was plenty of people that survived the war and kept what they had um what oh, they yes. had pillaged so um you see this uh, all of these pieces of art slowly start to kind of come into the the public sphere over basically the next half century um so I think uh, for a lot of museums, there was a lack. Um, and again, too, you know, we've discussed, too, how um, museum standardizations really didn't start until like the 70s, 80s, really. Mm -hmm. And as Sonia mentioned at the beginning, too, I mean, like this intentional act of trying to repatriate Nazi looted artifacts didn't happen until 99. So it was 50 years later after mm -hmm. the end of World War II that globally we even all go, yeah, we should probably be pretty intentional about this and figure this out. So yeah. again, it really comes back to provenance. Who has owned it and why? 
is the big, big question. So like, um, and it, and it, and unfortunately it's just, it's not always obvious. Like, yeah, it's kind of obvious if a, uh, you know, German sounding Argentinian tries to sell you a painting by, uh, <laughs> you know, by a 17th century, um, you know, Jewish man, like, okay, you know, maybe there's a tip there. Um, but you know, it, uh, generally speaking, um, it's all about asking those questions before you sign that deed of gift. I think, you know, it's, um, you know, where did you get this? How long has your family had it? Whose family had it first, you know, like, and really kind of digging in it. it it's unfortunately, it's a lot of work, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I think is why a lot of museums are like, eh, if you want to donate it, it's a beautiful piece of art by whomever will gladly take it despite, you know, who it was owned by. Um, unfortunately, it's just a lot of museum professionals nowadays have to put in the hard work of, no, confirm where it came from, especially the large museums too. Like I said, like a, there's always a chance that a small museum like the FHA might acquire something like that. But like, you know, if someone's trying to do something like this, they're probably trying to get headlines for it as well. So they're going to donate it to a major museum. So someone like the DIA has to be a lot more careful than the FHA. So uh, sorry, the Detroit Institute of arts. I think also you have to be really proactive in doing provenance research or Absolutely. at least that's my um, opinion. Either you can wait for people to claim their artifacts that, Like if you have Nazi looted artifacts in your collection, then you know that either you can proactively mm-hmm. like research that further and then give it back or you can wait for people to come and claim them. And um, often that never happens because there are obstacles in claiming these artifacts. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Especially like we said, the larger museums here, you can just walk in and talk to me. Um, but you know, larger museums, there's such a network of communication that you have to pile through. Like if you don't know, you don't know who to email, who to call, and you probably will get roadblocked because you're just some person, you know? Um, no, that's a really good point too, is it's not only the incoming stuff, but the stuff you already have too. Mm-hmm. Um, doing proactive work and going back into your catalog and seeing and, um, unfortunately it's just not an easy answer of like oh just start with these you know mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. yeah it takes it takes the hard work of of going back and being self-critical and being willing to accept what you find yeah mm-hmm. i think is the other thing too because mm-hmm. it's one thing mm-hmm. to know it's another thing to know and admit and you know do the hard work of repatriating those those items or publicly admitting it and being willing that someone might come up and say, yeah, that's mine, give it back. <laughs> and I think we're starting to see, um, it's a little encouraging that we're seeing this kind of movement in museums, especially in relation to Nazi looted artifacts, um, that museums are starting to try to recognize that we need to trace the provenance of this. We need to try mm-hmm. to find this out. And if we have the resources to do it, let's do it. Yeah. Um, and so that's pretty encouraging to see, obviously, with when you're dealing with thousands and thousands of artifacts, um, it can be very tough to do. Um, and so, but these are all tough, tough stuff. And it's, it's difficult too, because I would argue that we're doing the best we've ever done now, which Mm. should be the case, you know, Mm -hmm, (laughs) don't mm want to be in, in, in a field that's ever moving backwards, but it can't be, it can't go without saying that we have so far to go. And one, we have so far to go, not only in what we've been doing in one area, but also being kind of more uniformed about it too, because mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. there are loads and loads and loads of, you know, international legislation, local legislations, uh, policies, uh, committees, everything about that for Nazi looted artifacts, there's not nearly as much about indigenous artifacts, no. which also <laughs> hold, you know, religious value and uh, ceremonial value. And those ca- conversations are growing, but they're nowhere near the level, which I would say is, um, 
arguably just as bad as Nazi looted artifacts is indigenous um, genocide and the looting of those artifacts and then the use of those artifacts without the input of indigenous um, uh, voices for representation and display mm-hmm. and um, everything like that. And and then you kind of get into the broader conversation of like, well, 80% of some of the most major museums in the world, <laughs> their entire collection is looted from other places and yeah. on what ethical plain is that because you know you don't that's the other thing museums i think are really trying not to do as well but maybe need to explore a little bit is like is there a hierarchy of ethical looting you know Mm. um there's a famous saying you know uh to the victor go the spoils of war but like to what extent you know because i think i i don't think i would hope that i never meet anyone that says like oh no the nazis just they won the war for for then, so they were allowed to take whatever they wanted. No, 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 no. Um, well, I think this get this gets back to our point that like your idea of the victor go the spoils of war, like the winner writes the history, right? Mm-hmm, that's that's the importance of museums today is we have this power of interpretation and what mm-hmm. we're trying to do, and we're trying to do that with the very artifacts that we own, trying mm-hmm. to trace those those origins back, and so it's really important work. And mm-hmm. I think if museums have the resources. We definitely should. And I, I also liked that you bring up uh, the point about indigenous artifacts because I think a lot of what we've talked about already can be applied to that. Um, Easily, whether it's yeah. when an artifact is donated to get as much information as you can um, as the collections manager, whether it's an exhibit uh, designer or a curator mm-hmm. to go to um, that group of people. So, for example, we have um, some Ojibwe Chippewa artifacts in our collection to go to, like the Saginaw Chippewa Indian Tribe, and try to get them um, to participate in the curation of an exhibit. Um, I think those are, are very important conversations that museum professionals need to have, and we're starting to see that a little bit more today. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we hope it, it keeps growing, keeps continuing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but it's difficult. And I think that's the is. thing is like a lot of people shy away and. I don't know. To me, this is also why I kind of love the museum field, though, is it's not easy. There are some really difficult questions that we grapple with in this field and um, and activities and what we've done and what we will do. And, you know, I guess just like uh, just a personal PSA to anyone out there looking to get into the museum field, if you're not willing to really dive into this difficult work, have these difficult conversations and really look at yourself and all of your pre-assumptions in the mirror and say man, maybe I was wrong about a few things or maybe I need to, you know, maybe these things are challenging me. If you're not ready to do that, then this field isn't for you. I mean, I think a lot of people get into this field thinking it's like, oh, it's fun. I'll just get to play with artifacts. And sometimes, you know, you have days where it's fun and you just get to play with artifacts. Like you get (laughs) 650 beer (laughs) items donated to you and you just have to catalog those and your day is great and you have no ethical challenges or questions. Um, But in a broader sense, you know, um, we have a lot of responsibility in the Mm. museum field. We have a lot of responsibility to deconstruct preconceived notions of what a museum is, what an artifact is. And some of this work too is not just repatriating artifacts to their original people, but it's actually admitting, you know, if we kind of go circle a little bit back to that um, spoils of war conversation, you know, is like, that's been a common saying my entire life that Mm -hmm. I've kind of just like, Oh, yep. And like, you know, history is written by the victors, but to really deconstruct those two phrases is really to sort of deconstruct, um, the human intention of grouping themselves and othering Mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. Um, we're all human beings. So to the, you know, to the victor go, the spoils says that your humanity as a victor in your eyes means you sort of, 
lack any sort of ethical intention then that you are not hold to held to any ethical standards. I don't agree with that anymore. I used to, um, I definitely used to think for a long time, no museums are fine. I used to think like, Hey, Napoleon won. So Mm -hmm. sucks to suck, (laughs) you know, like he, he won. If you had fought a better battle, you could have kept your stuff. Like I used to Mm -hmm. kind of think like that when I was definitely younger. Um, nowadays I think, not so much, you know. I, I don't think you are exempt from from ethical discussion just because you won a battle. You know, um, we're all human beings, and if anything, to deconstruct those is to deconstruct nationalism, which just further separates us from ourselves. We're all human beings. We all deserve to be proud and to keep our culture and our heritage and not have it wiped out through these kinds of things. I think that makes museum also as interesting because they are kind of a reflection of society 100 percent. yeah what is going on in society is reflected in museums and i think if museums want to stay modern and stay like relevant for society they mm-hmm. need to deal with these issues absolutely i think you're right that you said it way better in like that one sentence that i just <laughs> oh, went on that no, rambling no, no. for so thank you <laughs> And so I think, uh, just to kind of wrap things up here, I think it's important that those are some practical ways to to maybe go to um, a descendant or to go to a group of people that um, where this artifact and the culture is where it's from to try to get that understanding a little bit more. Um, and that's why like oral history today is so important. Um, we could actually speak to descendants, right, and ask them about how they feel about this artifact being in our collection and, and talk to them about that history. Um, I think there's a lot of important work to do there. And so no pressure, Sonia, as an emerging museum professional, I guess on all <laughs> of us, really. Um, so we have Maybe, a lot of work to do. Not even the emerging, you know, even the old guard, in the mid guard, the new guard. You know, I think it's it's on all of us. And I, I, yeah, I think this is a field that's exciting because you're always learning. You're always kind of challenging your own perceptions and what you've learned and what you will learn too. Because I'm excited that in 10 years, I hope that there is a new class of museum professionals that come in and be like, why have you been doing this? And I'm like, I don't know. That's how I was taught. Oh, that's not how they teach it anymore. Great. Teach me the new. I hope I'm not so crusty <laughs> at that point that I won't listen to the new, the newbies. But <laughs> we can only hope that we can all be that way, right? I'll just um, be an old man with my cane yelling at the clouds like, <laughs> it used to be simple. <laughs> uh, so thank you, a uh, personal thank you to Sonia for joining us today and coming up with this uh, great topic. Definitely a conversation that needs to be had more and yeah. more often. Our first viewer topic, I guess, if you think about it, or yeah. a listener topic, because yeah. she was Ooh. listening and <laughs> suggested we do this uh, topic. And we were like, well, then you got to do it with us. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. This, this was my first podcast. It's so exciting. Well, <laughs> since this is her last podcast, should we give her the last word? Do you have any mm-hmm. kind of like wrap-up statements or just anything uh, you think you missed or just kind of want to add in? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm full of them. <laughs> Well, I think just as I said, I think museums uh, are such interesting places. There is so much debate going on. And um, I think um, not shying away from these difficult issues. I mean, talking about Nazi looted artifacts, it's um, linked to the Holocaust. It's one of the most difficult topics in history. And not shying away from that and not shying away from colonialism, which is linked to the the discussion on mummies, is um, very important if you want to, I don't know, stay relevant, stay open, modern as a museum. Yeah. Be willing to have the hard conversations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sonia, we didn't, 
talk about this before we started, but at the end, we all say Auf Wiedersehen together. Um, (laughs) So just be ready for that. Okay. All right. So I'll I'll let Nathan do the sign off, though. So thank you, everyone, (laughs) uh, for joining us uh, for another conversation on Historians and Later Hosen. Don't forget to subscribe, uh, leave a review, give us a like, follow us um, on all our social media. So um, with that, we'll be signing off. Auf Auf Wiedersehen. We did it. Let's try it again. We should have just let her do it. She, let's just we let should. it. Yeah, Go ahead, we, Sonia. We you get the sign off. Auf Wiedersehen und einen schönen Tag noch. Doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop.